Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number four of the Nursing Crash Cart, and my name is Cameron. Today we're going to talk about an important base of knowledge for critical care, acid-base balance. And we're going to talk about one of the biggest acid-base disturbances that we see in the ED, DKA, or diabetic ketoacidosis. So I'll initially do a quick basic overview of how to read a blood gas. So if that's all you're wanting to learn or refresh yourself on, you can get the info in just a few minutes and then ignore the rest of the podcast. However, if you're anal retentive like me and you want to get a better understanding of acid base in the body and then put it into practice with a scenario, you can stick around for the remainder and listen to me ramble about that too. So first let's talk about the components of the blood gas that we use to quickly determine the basic underlying cause of an acid-base disorder. First we have pH. Normal body pH is 7.35 to 7.45. As you recall on the pH scale, the lower the number, the more acidic. The higher the number, the more basic or alkalotic. As you approach the middle, 0.7, it's considered neutral. Your body is fantastic at attempting to generate neutrality. This is the concept of homeostasis. Your body and its many facets of exchanging and converting and excreting just to keep things balanced in the body. So anything under 7.35 is therefore considered acidotic in the body and anything above 7.45 is considered alkalotic. The vast majority of disorders that you will see in the ED will involve acidosis, but you can easily identify the four generalized disorder states, respiratory or metabolic acidosis and respiratory or metabolic alkalosis, with three simple values. That's all you need. The other thing to keep in mind is that the respiratory system is the quick fix for acid base, and the metabolic system is the slower process. And this is normally a difference between minutes for the respiratory system to kind of kick in and take over to multiple hours or even days for the metabolic system. So seeing a metabolic shift on the blood gas is normally a pretty good indicator that this problem didn't start an hour ago. So we have our pH and the next bits we care about are the carbon dioxide, CO2 and the bicarbonate, HCO3. Frequently we just call this bicarb. So normal CO2 levels are 35 to 45 and normal bicarb levels are 22 to 26. It kind of varies from facility to facility, so kind of keep, uh, you know, kind of look whatever uh, your facility uses for its normal ranges. Uh, Most of the time they'll be to the side of your actual values uh, whenever you receive a blood gas. So with those three ranges, that's all you need to interpret a blood gas. Now there are different methods that people use to try and figure out the blood gas interpretation. Uh, I've heard everything from the the naming sequence where you give it a last name, a first name, and then a middle name, or there's a, a grid pattern that you can use, but the one I hear the most is the mnemonic ROM. This stands for Respiratory Opposite Metabolic Equal, R-O-M-E. So what the heck does that mean? It's 
Basically a way to figure out which direction from the normal values for CO2 and bicarb are acidotic or alkalotic. Well, that may sound confusing, so let's, let's use some numbers to make it fit into a clinical picture. You have a patient, let's say a, a 19-year-old female, complaining of an anxiety attack. So let's talk about each blood gas value as I say it out loud, since chances are you're not in a place where you can write things down while you're listening to this. I mean, if you are, great, follow along on paper. Uh, otherwise, just kind of just listen and follow along that way. So the patient's pH, we'll say, is 7.51. Is this acidotic or alkalotic? Remember, normal range is 7.35 to 7.45, with no lower numbers being acidotic and higher numbers being alkalotic. So 7.51 is an alkalosis. Now we look at the CO2 and bicarb levels. CO2 is 29 and bicarb is 23. So is the CO2 level higher or lower than normal range? It's lower, right? Because normal CO2 is 35 to 45. How about the bicarb? Normal is 22 to 26, and this bicarb of 23 kind of you know, falls right into that range, so bicarb is normal. So here's where the Rome bit falls into play. Think of up or down arrows for each of the three values. pH, the arrow is going to be up because it's higher than normal. So we have an up facing arrow with the pH. CO2, well, the value is lower than normal, so that arrow is going to be facing down. Bicarb, it doesn't even get an arrow because it's normal. So we have one arrow that's the opposite of our other arrow. pH is up, CO2 is down. Respiratory opposite, metabolic equal. Arrows going opposite ways, this is respiratory. We know the pH is alkalotic, so this is a respiratory alkalosis. The tachypnea of anxiety is causing this girl to blow out all of her CO2. Whenever you hear CO2 in the context of a blood gas, think of it as acid. So the more of it there is, the more acidotic a person is. The less of it there is, the less acidotic they are, the more alkalotic they become. So what's the dime store fix for an anxiety attack? You see it on TV and shows and stuff like that all the time. A paper bag to breathe in, right? So now they can inhale some of that CO2 they're exhaling to retain more of that CO2 to bring it back to normal, thereby fixing the pH. So one more example would be a... Well, let's kind of go the opposite. We'll go like a 64-year-old male who's been on an extensive antibiotic course and then, and of course, he developed C. diff and has had several days of just absolute crushing severe diarrhea. On his blood gas... His pH is 7.31, which means he's acidotic, right? It's less than 7.35, so that's acidosis. And that gives him a downward-facing arrow for his pH. His CO2 is 35, and his bicarb is 18. CO2 is normal in this instance, which means it doesn't get an arrow, and bicarb is low, as the norm is 22 to 26, and 18 is below that, so the bicarb also gets a down arrow. Respiratory opposite, metabolic equal. The arrows are facing the same way, they're equal, so this is metabolic. This is a metabolic acidosis from bicarb loss through diarrhea. Now this isn't a very realistic blood gas, as 
we were talking about before, your body has a quick way to fix uh, any kind of an acidosis like that. It can blow off that CO2, just like our anxiety gal was doing in the previous example. Uh, so it, your body can try to create a respiratory alkalosis to attempt to correct the metabolic acidosis. Blowing off all that CO2 can nudge the pH back to normal. So what you might really see is a pH of 7.37, a CO2 of 27, and a bicarb of 18. So our pH is normal now. It's on the low side of normal. It's not perfect right in the middle, 7.4, but it's still normal, 7.37. Um, so we've got the, what did I say, the CO2 of 27 and the bicarb of 18. So CO2, low, bicarb, low. Now I have all three arrows kind of facing down. Yeah, you may not give an arrow for the pH, but we kind of just figure out wh which side of 7.4 is it on. Um, in this case, it's obviously the lower side, the acidotic side, even though it's normal. So we'll give it a down arrow anyway. So we have three arrows all facing down. Since they're equal, all facing the same way, we know this is metabolic. And since the CO2 is not in the normal range and it's trying to push that pH back to normal, we can call this compensated because the pH is normal. So we have the normal pH, but we have the CO2 that's in an alkalotic state and the bicarbonate uh, acidotic state. So we have this metabolic acidosis as the underlying cause, but the respiratory system is kicked in and it's done what it's supposed to do. It fixed the pH. It got us back to neutral where our body loves to be. So this is a compensated metabolic acidosis. All right, so then uh, the next kind of state, which might even be more realistic, like if you saw this patient early on, um, prior to the, the respiratory system having fully converted it back to a normal pH, um, would be more of a still an acidotic state, like a 7.33 or something crazy, uh, while still seeing that CO2 low. So now we definitely have all three arrows facing down, but the pH is not back to normal yet. So the term they kind of use for this is a is partially compensated because we know the compensation is trying to take effect with the CO2 being low because we're blowing that CO2 off trying to create an alkalosis to fix the acidosis, uh, but it's not quite there yet. It just it just started. It's in the early phases of it, and that pH isn't quite bumped back up to normal. So we call that partially compensated. Though it's, it's rare you ever hear anybody use compensated or partially compensated in the ED. So this kind of gives you a, a quick look at a blood gas. And it allows you to kind of figure out the basics of what the, uh, the underlying acid-base disorder is. So to quickly recap, normal values are pH of 7.35 to 7.45. CO2, easy to remember, just drop off those 7s, 35 to 45 and bicarb is 22 to 26. Rome is the mnemonic you can use, which stands for respiratory opposite metabolic equal. Figure out which way your arrows goes, and arrows go rather, and use the mnemonic to guide you on the source of the acidosis or the alkalosis. So there you go. And that's all you're looking to get out of acid base. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you'll keep listening to other episodes. For the rest of you, 
Let's delve a little bit deeper into acid base and then apply it to a DKA patient. Okay, so to the two people who are left listening, thanks for continuing on. You're my peeps. You're not afraid to get your physiology and organic chem on, so let's just push right in. Buffer system. I always heard that term with bicarb, but I never really cared what it meant beyond that if bicarb is low, it's acidosis. If bicarb is high, it's alkalosis. We want to know more than that. We want to understand what's going on in our patient so we can make sure the best interventions are being performed and so that we can anticipate and critically think through the patient's illness. The buffer system is kind of like like the riot police out there with their shields and their face masks and their billy clubs. If a rush of rioters or looters come flying in, they detain them, they get them out of the situation, and they hold that line. Bicarb is one of the buffer systems your body uses for maintaining equilibrium, maintaining that homeostasis. It's the riot police, and hydrogen ions are your rioters and looters. So let's step back one step from my crappy metaphor and say you're trying to kill somebody by injecting a syringe filled with hydrogen ions right into the person's bloodstream. As you probably recall, hydrogen ions are what we use to measure acidity. More hydrogen ions, more acidotic. So when we say bicarb is a buffer, we're really saying it's a hydrogen ion buffer. Its purpose is to hold that line where that line is a normal pH of 735 to 745. Our bodies, and specifically our central nervous system, don't like being at a normal pH range, which is why buffering systems are so important. So, so how does the body's riot police actually buffer? Oddly enough, by creating an acid. Hydrogen ions are positively charged, they're H+, and they're looking to hook up with a negative charge. Hey, bicarb, HCO3, negative sign, jumps in and tries to make uh, make sure it's the one, that it's the negative charge that it wants to bond with. So once it snags and detains that hydrogen ion, bicarb transforms into carbonic acid, adding that hydrogen ion, bicarb changes from HCO3 to H2CO3. So I know what you're thinking, how the heck is creating an acid going to help stop an acidosis. Well, that's easy. We're not done with the carbonic acid. Think of carbonic acid as the bicarb, our, our riot police, handcuffing itself to the hydrogen ion rioter. When the two are combined, it's carbonic acid. Well, our, our riot police wants to take the rioter back down to the station and tell Dano to book him. So in this case, our lungs are the station. H2CO3, our carbonic acid, it's just the middleman in our acid-base transformation, as it's the intermediate form of bicarb and a hydrogen ion converting all the way to water and carbon dioxide. So you start with your carbonic acid, H2CO3, now let's remove water from that, so you remove an H2O from that. That leaves over a CO2, that's carbon dioxide. Now, where in the body do we know that can get rid of carbon dioxide? That's right, the lungs. There's this constant shifting going on between carbon dioxide, water, hydrogen ions, and bicarb in the body to continuously hold that line. It's a minute shift, and you have infinite 
sources to create hydrogen and bicarb to keep trying to fluctuate and make sure that line is being held right there at that normal value. As a quick tangent, this is also why it's completely frustrating to see bicarb being pushed in critically ill patients who are on a ventilator. You see it all the time though. You see a patient who came in, they were unresponsive, they got tubed, come to find out they're horribly acidotic, and of course, it used to be one of those things like the, the measure of, of a good ICU or critical care nurse is how fast you could push your bicarb. But this extra bicarb, the only thing that's being done with it is being used to round up more hydrogen ions and then take them to the lungs. To get rid of these extra hydrogen ions, we convert it to CO2 to blow it off. But since we're the one controlling this patient's um, you know, ability to breathe because they're on a ventilator, we're not allowing them to blow off that CO2. We want them to actually get rid of that extra CO2 um, that we're you know, producing with our buffer system that we're forcing into them by giving them an ample bicarb. We've got to make them breathe more often. We actually have to hyperventilate these patients when we give bicarb to make it have any effect at all on adjusting that or allowing that buffer system to do its job. So, tangent over with that. Uh, the next concept to talk about is the anion gap. So first, this is an older term. Uh, it was kind of used before we could accurately quantify the smaller parts of maintaining electroneutrality. So the gap portion refers to something we can measure now with laboratory values, we just frequently choose not to. The classic anion gap is a way of looking at the difference between the predominant cations and the predominant anions. It's the gap between the two. Now really the body does a damn good job maintaining neutrality, so pretending there's a gap between cations and anions is pretty foolish. But this can at least give us an idea how much extra stuff we're looking for. So your cations are your sodium and your potassium, your lar larger positive charged ions. The anions we use are chloride and bicarb, your larger negatively charged ions. Most modern equations kind of just drop potassium anyway as it's a smaller number compared to the other ones. It's just not quite as important. So this means that a normal sodium of 140 minus a normal chloride of 102 and a normal bicarb of 24 gives you a normal gap around 14. So what's in this gap since we know the body's really trying to maintain and sustain homeostasis. We know some things that we know there's really not a gap. Uh, we know something makes up that space. Well, that's your lactates, ketone bodies, and weak acids like albumin. We can measure ketone bodies, we can measure lactate, and we can measure albumin, which means we can actually see the vast majority of this gap with just some simple labs. But since we ignore these when we're measuring the anion gap, we really use it to indicate uh, an acidosis that's not caused by hyperchloremia. So think about it. As you're in a metabolic acidosis, your bicarb buffering system is getting all used up. So we know your bicarb level is going to be low. That's how we interpret it on a blood gas. Your pH is low, your bicarb is low. They're equal, both down-facing arrows. We know it's a metabolic acidosis. So this means the anion side of the gap equation is going to be smaller, which tends to lead to a larger anion gap number. 
say your sodium and chloride are absolutely normal, but your bicarb is 6 because of this metabolic acidosis. This means 6 plus the normal chloride of 102 for a total of 108. Subtract that from the normal sodium of 140, and now your anion gap is 32. That's a lot, lot higher than that 14 we were talking about before. So the higher the anion gap, the more acids like lactate, albumin, and ketones are circulating. The last concept I want to quickly touch on before we move on to our DKA patient is base excess or base deficit. This is another value you'll get on the blood gas and it can kind of give you a quick indicator just how much acid or base needs to be overcome to get back to neutral. You always want to pay attention to what your lab uses, excess or deficit, because that determines what the number means. Sometimes it will change words to always allow it to have a positive number, so just pay attention. So if CO2 is our biggest indicator of acid-base balance for the respiratory component, then base excess or base deficit is kind of what defines the, the metabolic side of things. A base excess is just what it says. It's an excess of base or alkalotic products. So having a positive base excess, like a base excess of 12, means the body needs 12 millimoles of acid to bring the body back to a neutral pH of 7.4. Likewise, a base deficit means there's an excess of acid and a deficit of the alkalotic products. Where this can be confusing is that sometimes, based on how your lab presents your values, they'll use negative numbers. So if you have a negative base deficit, really what they're saying is you have a positive base excess. And vice versa, if you have a negative base excess number, it's really a base deficit. So just try to keep that in mind when you see those numbers um, and not, not uh, you know, make sure you're putting it in the right context. Uh, there's definitely a much better equation out there to help solve the underlying cause of a patient's metabolic disorder, uh, but it's, it's somewhat lengthy to get into for today. Um, if you follow the MCRIT podcast, Scott Weingart does an excellent job. He has a three or four part series on acid-base balance and does a great, great job um, talking about um, you're getting more into the strong ion difference and just how much albumin actually affects neutrality. But for now, I want to introduce our patient. So we have Diane Abidas, although she prefers to go by Di, just like the princess. And she's a 29-year-old type 1 diabetic who arrives by medic. She was found unresponsive at home by her mother, who was just checking up on her and called 911 when she couldn't arouse her daughter. On arrival, Miss Abidas has a heart rate of 137, a respiratory rate of 32. She's normal thermic by rectal temperature. She's sitting 91% on room air and has a blood pressure of 92 over 68. Her finger stick glucose on arrival reads high on the glucometer, which has an upper limit of 550. So we know her blood sugar is greater than 550. Her mother tells you that she had an upper respiratory infection last week and while she was at the house checking on her daughter, she saw the prescription for the antibiotic that was still sitting on her dining room table that had never been filled. So initially a nasal cannula is placed on the patient with two liters of oxygen, and the patient's O2 increases from 91 back up to 98%. Two large bore IVs are started, blood work is drawn including a venous blood gas, 
and a Foley catheter is inserted with urinalysis and a urine HCG sent to lab. Remember, all childbearing aged female patients are pregnant until proven otherwise. A portable chest x-ray is ordered after the HCG comes back negative a few minutes later, and a bolus liter of normal saline is started in each IV. So before we go any further, let's just think about this patient that's in front of you. What do you expect to see on the blood gas? What do you expect to see in their urine? Besides the CBC, a venous gas, and a metabolic panel, what other lab might you anticipate them ordering? And then lastly, how did this patient progress to the state she's in right now? What are, what are our primary goals for this patient going to be? So back to the first question, what do we expect to see on the blood gas? Well, we know the patient is in DKA. I already, I already told you that up front. So what acid-based disorder do we expect on the blood gas? Metabolic acidosis, right? So now look at our respiratory rate. It's high at 32 breaths per minute, when the norm for an adult is only like the, you know, the 12 to 20 range. So why might that be? The name we give to this, this rapid, deep, labored breathing is two small respirations. When there's a metabolic acidosis, first, breathing is rapid and shallow, but as acidosis worsens and goes on for a longer time, that breathing becomes deeper, more labored, and there's almost like a gasping sensation to it. Like they just sprinted 400 yards and they're trying to catch their breath. That's the dangerous part of this, that word labored. If this is a sick patient who's not working with a healthy metabolism to fuel their energy, and they have this increased work of breathing that can tire them out pretty, pretty easily. So sometimes these patients will be intubated to help them with some of their work of breathing. Stick them on the ventilator, allow their lungs some time to rest, get them a little bit better, get them extubated. So the blood gas comes back, and the pH is 6.96 with a CO2 of 9 and a bicarb of 4. Well, we sure as heck know this isn't compensated with a crappy pH like that, but we can see that the respiratory system is trying to do its job by blowing off as much CO2 as it can. Remember, CO2 kind of like an acid. We have that carbonic acid that gets converted to CO2 in water and gets blown off. So it kind of makes you curious just what the pH would be without the aid of your lungs, without that, that partial compensation. It sounds pretty dumb to say partial compensation when their pH is 6.96. I digress. So either way, this is pretty much kind of exactly what we expected to see. It's a bad metabolic acidosis, and it's that partial compensation we're seeing by the respiratory system. So what do we expect to see in the urine? Well, we already know this is DKA, so we should be seeing ketones. And I can guarantee we're going to see a ton of glucose spilling into the urine as well. So then what other lab might we anticipate? Beta-hydroxybutyrate. Beta-hydroxybutyrate is synthesized in the liver to be used as an energy source. It's a ketone. So quickly back to our anion gap. It's part of what's going to cause that high anion gap. This is the cause of our acidotic state. It's an acid. So why is Diane's body making this ketone then? I mean, there's plenty of glucose in the blood, right? 
And that's our energy source. Why would the body need to make an alternate energy source? Well, to use glucose for energy, the body needs insulin. Insulin is what allows the tissues in the body to absorb glucose from the blood. So being that she's a type 1 diabetic, Diane's glucose isn't being used for energy because she's not producing any insulin. So the liver has to take over to help keep the brain and the heart fed and functioning. It does this by creating ketone bodies and fatty acids. Ketone bodies can weasel their way into the Krebs cycle, giving us energy. So this is why we might anticipate a beta-hydroxybutyrate, but really the fact that the patient's blood sugar is over 250, that they're acidotic, and that we see ketones in the urine, those are the only three criteria we need to say that a patient is in DKA. By actually measuring the beta-hydroxybutyrate, we can kind of see you know, just how far this patient has gone in terms of how much, how, many, um, how much ketones they're producing to kind of give us a good idea just how, how far they are. But we already know that this person doesn't look all that great just from the blood gas. So unfortunately, without insulin to help inhibit the pancreas, glucagon is also being produced, especially since the body was already in a stress state from that respiratory infection. So glucagon is also going to make the liver elevate the blood glucose by promoting uh, glycogenolysis as well as glyconeogenesis. And that's exactly what this patient needs, right? More blood glucose. So all this circulating glucose is going to cause additional problems, especially as it flows through the kidneys. When glucose enters the kidney tubules, it creates an increase in osmotic pressure, reducing the reabsorption of water thus increasing urinary output. This is the famous polyuria of diabetes. So the term for this state is osmotic diuresis. Electrolytes also get excreted, like sodium and potassium. And as you recall, or you will definitely learn, where sodium goes, water follows. So this severe state of diuresis in DKA patients it leads to a large dehydration. This is both intracellular and extracellular dehydration. So this is why DK uh, patients, why they get a good amount of fluid in the ED. These patients are typically dry as a bone in the desert. So what else are we going to do for these patients besides rehydrate them? The first thing that everybody wants to do is jump on the pH and the blood glucose or do both at the same time. You know, quick, push an amp of bicarb, start fixing their pH, and let's give them a bolus of 0.1 units per keg of IV insulin. If you hear either of those things before your labs are even back, you need to question them. First, let's talk about the bicarb. The pH is a symptom of the metabolic acidosis. It's not the insult on the body. Sure, you could push an amp of bicarb, and sure, it might raise the pH. But what studies are showing is that it might also lower the intracellular pH. Regardless, you did nothing to fix the ketone production, causing the acidosis, so your temporary shift in pH was just it was worthless. So then next, there's the insulin. Now, this one may not be as obvious unless, you, uh, unless you've worked as an RN before, um, or you've taken care of hyperkalemic patients, which is to say high potassium level patients. So one of the treatments to acutely lower potassium levels is insulin. 
uh, which can help by redistributing potassium back into the cells. It pushes extracellular potassium intracellular. Now we just got done talking about the diuresis that these patients are experiencing and that potassium is one of the electrolytes that's being excreted in the urine. So if we already have a low potassium and then we make it worse by giving this patient insulin, we can give these patients cardiac dysrhythmias, which can be lethal. So the general rule is that the patient's potassium level should be above 3.3 before any insulin is even administered. And then potassium should be replaced as part of their therapy. So as we're giving insulin, we need to make sure we're also giving them potassium to keep their potassium levels up. Now obviously if this patient is hyperkalemic, despite all of the typical DKA um, expectations of electrolytes, obviously we can go ahead and start insulin right away. We don't have to worry about waiting, and we likely don't have to worry about replacing any of the potassium uh, initially. We do want to keep an eye on it though. We don't want to send this patient uh, their potassium down below normal. So frequently, once the insulin becomes uh, starts getting administered, it's going to be in the form of a drip. And that's that previously mentioned 0.1 units per kilogram per hour. So an 80 kilogram patient is going to get 8 units of insulin per hour. The only insulin that should ever be administered IV is regular insulin. If you have an order for insulin and the route is IV, regular insulin is the only insulin you can use. Make sure you know that. The next potential problem with DKA treatment tends to be long after we've sent the patient upstairs, but more and more EDs are having to board ICU and step down patients for longer periods of time. So this might be relevant for your patient. So six hours after starting Diane's insulin drip, her hourly AccuCheck, because we're going to start checking her blood sugar hourly now since we have her on this insulin drip, and it shows that her blood glucose is down to 224, which is a huge improvement from that greater than 550 that she had on arrival. So, she's pretty well fixed. We should just turn off the insulin, right? Eh, wrong. These patients need to fix the underlying acidosis before we turn off the insulin. So, most of the time, that means they no longer have an anion gap on their blood gas. I'm sorry, on their, on their laboratory. Um, so this is going to be in your metabolic panel. We want to make sure that that gap is back down to normal. So Diane came in pretty freaking sick. And while she's more responsive now, maybe, she still has that high anion gap. So if we need to keep the insulin going, what's our next risk? Hypoglycemia. We can make these patients drop too much, and then we're just yo-yoing their blood sugar. So once under a blood sugar of 250, patients are normally swapped to a dextrose-containing solution like D545, and then an adjustment is made to their insulin drip. Once the gap corrects itself from stopping the ketone production and rehydrating the patient, the insulin can be discontinued, and the patient will be monitored for any kind of rebound, hypo, or hyperglycemia. So the other thing we have to do for Diane is fix her underlying respiratory infection to make sure she's not back the next week with the same symptoms. So luckily this will be starting uh, some IV antibiotics while she's there since we've already got uh, you know, IV started and she's already on one insulin drip. We may as well kick this thing's butt with uh, another insulin drip. And chances are this will probably progress to some kind of a pneumonia. 
So based on where you are, it's probably like a Levaquin or maybe even a Vancomycin that you'll be using to kind of help treat this particular uh, pneumonia. So there we go. We've kind of covered basic acid-base uh, disorders, balance, and kind of the, the one of the largest ones you're going to see in the ED, well, the old, good old DKA patient. The other big uh, acid-base disorder you will frequently see is going to be the COPD exacerbations. So we may talk about those some of the time. Maybe we'll get uh, more in-depth into acid-base at that time, talk a little bit about the, the strong ion, ion, excuse me, strong ion difference, as well as kind of look into the equation and start figuring out how to find out where our acidosis are uh, really coming from. So hopefully uh, you got a little bit of information out of this. Maybe you can figure out why we treat DK patients the way we do, why that fluid is so important for them, and why we need to not necessarily jump right into the, the usage of insulin or the usage of bicarb in patients like this. Maybe have a little bit better understanding of how to interpret a blood gas now and what's going on behind the scenes with these patients to kind of give you a better concept of you know, what's really going on with the buffer system and, and how the body's trying to maintain some of this electron neutrality. So, I'd like to thank Pretty Lights for the background music you heard in today's episode. If you liked it, you can check out more at prettylightsmusic.com. If you want to contact me, you can shoot me an email at edcrashcart at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at edcrashcart. You can check me out on the web at edcrashcart.com, where you can see show notes for today's episode, as well as see previous episodes. You can also check us out on iTunes. Just go and search for Nursing Crash Cart there. Feel free to go ahead and subscribe while you're there, as well as uh, leave a review or a or just give us some some stars there to let me know what you think. Uh, you know, always give me some more ideas for future shows. We've got a bunch planned at the moment, so I don't know uh, how long it'll be before I get to some new ideas. Uh, but as always, uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. For all two of you that that uh, stuck through and listened to the rest of it beyond the basic acid-based uh, Rome stuff, and I wish you safe nursing in the future. Bye bye.